I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin. Do any of you have skills now, today, that you didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, before coming to, to be pastor here, um, perhaps some of you know, I worked uh, carpentry construction um, for a quick construction company of Des Moines, Iowa. And it's a job I never had before. We, we um, were um, having to, I had to find a new job being that we were not able to continue at Faith Baptist Bible College and so I had to find a new job and spent a few weeks looking, trying to find the right fit that would give me certain things and certain flexibility. And so found this one. The problem was I, never, I had never done carpentry construction before. And, uh, you, and it was an a interesting time. It was, it was a very talent, challenging time for me. I was, I was, I was so green I, I, and so raw, you could have passed me off for raw meat in the, in the grocery store. I was, just, I was that raw at this job. Didn't really know how to do it. Struggled to understand what what, where, and who did what, and how things were supposed to work. And obviously there was frustrations that were uh, thrown at me because I was so new and, and not working and, uh, as up to par what they were expecting. And so I had, I had to go through a phase where I was just learning everything. I didn't have my own tools. I had maybe a few tools to use and wasn't used to the whole environment working on a job site and such. And as time went on, you know, the, the, the struggles continued. And, but, but also as time went on, I was able to pick up more and more, and more, to the point that when I left uh, a couple months ago, uh, I was so much more far ahead than I had been when I started. It was night and day. Uh, I knew about certain things that we were pretty much guaranteed to do and knew how they went. I, I still struggled in some areas. I didn't have it all down. Still don't, but I felt more confident uh, at the end than at the beginning, and perhaps you, you, you have experienced that as well, whether you were going through a new job or uh, learning a new skill. You had that time where you were just really un- not understanding. And, but as time went on, as you continued, worked at that skill, perhaps in your job, uh, you got better at it. And so that became more of an inherent skill for you, and it was something that you could do better than you, when you had first started. And therefore, you are successful because of that today. Perhaps uh, you can go into perhaps even an old job that you had, and that skill still there, and you can still do that job because that skill cultiv- you cultivated, and now you're successful at it. Well, just like the skills in life are required to be successful, cultivated over time, so maturity in the faith is necessary for spiritual life. My challenge to you this morning as we consider this passage of Scripture is that we must mature in our faith. We must mature in our faith. Not not, not we must be mature. Yes, that's part of it. But we must mature in our faith. The idea of mature is to grow, to to, to, uh, be more ahead than you were before. And this instance, it's, it's, it's referring to our faith, our faith in Jesus. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that there are two actions that help us to mature in our faith. How do we do that? There's two actions. The first one I see from verses 15 through 18 is that we depend upon God. We depend upon God. Notice with me that Paul says, Therefore I also, after having heard of your faith, 
in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. There's, there's a few things, and uh, this starts off as a, this is a, a great prayer to God that Paul makes, and he will make more prayers uh, as, as we begin, as we continue to go through. Um, in chapter 3, verse 14, he has another prayer that he lays out. And here's the first one in the, in the book of Ephesians. And it, it starts very uh, solidly. And, and, and I put there on the screen for you, dependence upon God is grounded in what God has done for us. You see the, the phrase, therefore I also. The commentators debate whether this links with what follows. Is, it, is Paul's prayer because of uh, hearing their faith and their love for Jesus, love for all the saints, faith in Jesus, or is it going back to the discussion in 3 through 14 of, of what God has done for us. And I would, I would argue that that's the case. Paul is, is making this plea for maturity based upon what God has done for the believer and what God has done for you and I. So he makes this, this, this plea for, for, for maturity based upon this. Going back to the redemption that we have the, 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 the promise of, of the inheritance, the gathering together, that God is, is, is making all things un, one under Christ so that he is preeminent. And being adopted, being predestined to the adoption, choosing us, blessing us, all these different things. Paul writes that this prayer and realizes that without the work of God in, in verses 3 through 14, the discussion that he has, there is no faith. There is no opportunity for maturity. There is no opportunity for growth to be more like Christ. Be, why? Because if God hadn't done what he'd done in, uh, described in verses 3 through 14, there is no faith. There is no hope. So dependent upon God and it is grounded in what God has done for us. Secondly, dependence upon God does not negate the need to be uh, already maturing. Look, look at this prayer. Paul says, look at that phrase, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. These two phrases, making mention of you and, and giving thanks, do not cease show that Paul was intentional in citing them in his prayers. Paul, Paul made regular habit of, of mentioning the church of Ephesus in his prayers. They had so impacted his heart and his mind as he, he heard of their faith and their love, which we'll get to you here in a minute, that he couldn't stop mentioning them as he prayed. Perhaps he thought of people that, that he interacted with on, when he was there for two years and perhaps he thought about their, their faith and who they, who they were and thanking God for them as, and, and encouraging encouragement to his heart as he, he's continually praying. He doesn't stop praying for them. He just continually does it. He doesn't, for, he doesn't remember them when one prayer and then forget them in the next. No, he's, he's continually reminded of them in his prayer life. And what is he reminded of them? He's, he's reminded of their love for the saints and their faith in Christ. It was so powerful that Paul could not help but mention them in his prayer life. So he's giving thanks to them. The word, the word give thanks uh, 
is an outward expression in word or deed of the interior sentiment of gratitude for a favor received. So, so, so Paul is giving thanks not for a favor that he's received from them, but the very content of what he's heard, their faith and their love. So he's giving thanks, he's giving praise to God, he's, he's grateful to God for their faith and their love. And he's also, as, he, as he's specifically praying for them, he's also making note that this, this is something personal for him. This is a personal practice for Paul. It continued on, giving thanks, making a mention. This is something Paul always did. Which, by a, by a side note, I hope we do the same. As we labor in our, in our Christian lives, I hope we are in the regular habit of praying for people. Not, 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 not that our prayers do anything, but they show how much we need God to work in that individual's life. So therefore, we mention them in our prayers. Do we have regular habits in our lives of, of, of praying for people? Maybe not every day, but are we continually making efforts to remind ourselves of those people in our prayers? And obviously, the faith and the love of the Ephesian believers is what Paul highlights Notice, first of all, that I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. This faith is, is personal. This isn't just abstract faith, general faith that Paul is thankful for in the Ephesian believers. It's, it's personal. There's life to it. They, they are personally choosing to believe in Christ. They're, they're not believing because their father or mother did or their grandfather or grand, grandmother did. No, this is a personal choice. It's your faith. Paul is thankful for the active faith of the believers in Ephesus. They are not choosing to back down from their faith. They are continuing to believe in what Jesus has done for them. Yes, they got saved in the past, but that, act, that faith continues to the present even despite the circumstances they face. They're not also, they're also loving all the saints. Again, it's personal, your love. And it's a love that is not self-serving, but others-focused. It, foc- it prefers the needs of others without seeking reward, and it ignores its own wants while seeking to supply the needs of others. It's this love that, that puts others first and itself last. That's the love that they had. And Paul is thankful for it. But notice who, to who this love is, is, is evidenced. It is to all the saints. And I find it very interesting that Paul uses the word all. He could have said just the saints. But he says all. And, and it just shows me that there was no one exempt from receiving the love of Christ. And the Ephesians demonstrated that. There was no believer in the church who they felt didn't deserve Christ's love and practiced that to all believers. And it leads me to ask this question, do we all love the saints, especially those who are unlovable? Do you and I, in our, 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 our church body life, when we come together, when we, we separate, we go our separate ways, do we all love the saints, regardless of who they are? I don't know about you, but there's been some Christians that I've encountered over my life that just really kind of get you. They get under your skin. They, 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 they don't really act like a Christian. They are, they are hard to get along with. They are hard to deal with. They, are, they may be stubborn in character and ornery in nature, and 
You just don't know how to interact with that person. But the love of Christ, according to the example of the Ephesian believers and examples in scriptures, is to be shown to all believers, regardless of what type of person they are. Are you and I loving each other in so many ways to such that we do not distinguish between the people we like or the people we don't like? It's just one love that's shown to everybody. And I, I get it. People are hard to love. People make mistakes. People, people get under your skin. People have annoying habits that just drive you nuts. But the Ephesian believers didn't distinguish. They didn't say, oh, I'm going to love this person and, and not that person who's sitting across from me. I don't like them too much. Well, no, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, talk to that person on a Sunday morning, but that, that person across there, they're a little weird. I'm going to avoid them. No, no, our love is to be shown to all the saints. And, and I hope you do that. I hope you are practicing that. Even with people you have disagreements with, even people you find hard to get along, please show the love of Christ to them. They are your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so you should love them. The Ephesian believers did that. They showed love to all the saints. And so showing, by showing their love for the saints, their faith in Christ, they were already maturing. They already experienced spiritual growth. So there's already growth there. One cannot be mature in the faith if not some level of maturity is already there. Thirdly, God can only grant what is needed to mature in the faith. Look at, continue on with me, if you will, please. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is, this is the content of Paul's prayer. Yes, he's giving thanks for the believers. He's making mention of them. He's thankful for their faith and their love. But here's, here's what Paul wants. We always have requests in our prayer time, and that's a good thing. But Paul wants this. He, he wants God to grant the Ephesian believers spiritual insight into understanding him. Spiritual insight into understanding him. That is God. The, word, the, the, the verb may give expresses that this is Paul's wish or desire. He doesn't want the believers to do something for Paul. Paul wants the believers to experience God granting them knowledge to understand God more. And notice where this is supposed to take place. They give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The word spirit here, some, again, some go back. Is, this the, the, is Paul asking that our spirit be given knowledge? Um, is he asking that our mind be given knowledge and, and be able to understand God better? I, I think that the, trend, the, the idea here is that Paul is describing a specific work of the Holy Spirit. And the work is this, revealing knowledge to the believer so they can, God, so they can understand God as the Spirit has revealed him. So Paul is asking that God grant the believers this, this work of the Spirit that allows the believer through the work of the Spirit to understand God better to understand him deeper, to understand him more intimately. That's what Paul wants God to do in the life of the believer. Not, not the believer, 
to understand that. He doesn't tell the Ephesian believers to go and study more, read scripture more. No, he says, God, would you grant them insight into who you are? Wisdom here refers to knowledge that is produced in the mind. So it's the, it's the thoughts of the mind, things that we think about that lead to knowing things. Revelation has the idea of to make fully known. So Paul is asking that the believer know God deeply and completely. This is the whole goal of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ is to know God completely and deeply. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Listen to this as I read, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what Paul was concerned with. He was concerned with knowing Christ, knowing God. That's what he wanted. He wanted to know him. He wanted to know him crucified. He wanted to know everything about the inter- intricate workings of God and the Father and the Spirit. That was Paul's obsession. And in that case, it was good. To, be, to, be, to know God deeply, to understand God deeply, is and should be the desire of every believer, the goal of every believer. For by knowing God, we know what we're supposed to do and we live more like he wants us to. Now, we will never exhaustively know God, but that does not negate the responsibility that you and I have to know him and to understand him more, more intimately and more deeply, which leads me to say, are you working towards knowing God? Are you asking that God would, are you using this, this, this inspiration of, of, the, of the scriptures, this, this pattern that Paul lays out, where you ask God to grant wisdom to the believers in Ephesus so they know him better? Are you doing the same for yourself? Are you asking that God would work in your heart and in your understanding so that you can know God better? We never stop growing. We never stop to the point where, you know, we're, we're done, that's it. We, we know all that we can know and, and we're just going to just kind of bask in what we know and, and nothing more. No, no, Paul highlights that there is maturity needed for the faith and only God can give that. Are you relying upon God to give you knowledge to know him more? To know him more intimately, to know him more deeply. Fourthly, under this point of depending upon God, maturity in the faith is possible because faith in Christ has already occurred. That's, that's the idea of the phrase, the eyes of your understanding being lightened. Or other translations read the eyes of your heart. And this is a, kind of a difficult phrase, but the, the idea of the word being enlightened shows a past action with present results. So, so Paul is describing here the, the salvation that the believer has occurred, that, that time, point in time where they were saved uh, from their sin, trusted in Christ for salvation, and now they are saved. They, they have their eyes of their hearts being enlightened. And the idea here is, is, is that the eyes are the window into the soul, if you will, and the heart has been changed because the heart is where everything takes place. The heart is the seat of our emotions and wills. So therefore, salvation has come through our understanding of, of ourselves before God, and God has changed our hearts. You can only be mature in, faith, in the faith if you've been saved in the faith, if you have faith in Christ, which leads me to ask this morning, has there been a time in your life where you, you have had the eyes of your heart enlightened? 
Has there been a time in your life where you confessed you were a sinner, that there was no way you were getting to God apart from Jesus Christ, you received his free gift of salvation, and now are a child of God? Has that happened for you? Now, many of us in this room would, would nod our heads yes, but perhaps there's someone in this room who hasn't. There's never been a time in your life where you confessed that you were a sinner and received Christ's free gift of salvation. But you know what? Today can be the day. Today can be the day that your, your eyes of your heart can be enlightened so you may understand and know that God loves you, God died for you, and he wants to save you. I hope you're not here for just a, a good time or make yourself feel better. I hope you have come to the point in your life where you need Christ. Why? Because, because without him, faith is not possible. And one cannot mature in the faith, grow to be, more, to be a, a more complete Christian without knowing him personally, having faith in him. It leads me to ask this question as a point of application this morning. Are you depending upon God for your maturity in the faith? Or are you doing it yourself? There are many Christians, many believers today who are, who are trying to through their works or through their church attendance or through their reading Christian books, trying to grow in their faith. And that's not, that's not wrong. Please, please don't misunderstand me. That's not wrong. But they're doing it themselves. They're trying to make that effort themselves. When in reality, when we look at this pattern from Scripture, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, we see the need for God to help us. Because we can't do it on our own. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot mature in our faith on our own. It is impossible. We need God. We are frail human beings who need a powerful, almighty Savior, an almighty God to help us grow in the faith. Are you, are you depending upon God to grow in your faith? Are you, are you letting, are you, are you in your, your prayer life, in your just daily life, saying, God, please help me today. Please help me to know you more. Please help me to grow in you more. Please help me to be more like you. Do you depend upon him to grow in your faith? I hope you do. I hope you are, you are there. I hope you are growing in your faith, not because of your own work, because you're depending upon God to do it. Because that's how maturity happens. It's a God thing. It's not a human thing. It's not a David thing. It's a God thing. So if we're going to be mature in our faith, we're going to grow in our faith, we must depend upon God for it to happen. That's the only way it's going to happen, is depending upon him. Secondly, we expand our knowledge of God's attributes and actions. Verses 18, last half of verse 18, the end of the verse 23 that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Knowing we expand our knowledge of God's attributes and, and actions. I, I liken it to this. Um, you know, a doctor in a particular field, let's say, oncology, is always learning about his field, isn't he? He's always studying, observing, writing, reading about his specialty. That doctor that you go to see for oncology and refer to cancer issues, you want to walk in and, and know that that doctor has studied up on his field. 
That he's not a newbie in this area. And so you trust a, a guy that you talk to who's, who's established in his uh, methods and his ways and, and has done a lot of practice, a lot of studying and writing and observing. I remember a few years ago, I got LASIK eye surgery uh, at uh, Whiting Clinic in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. It's a, it's a big clinic. Um, the Dr. Whiting, who uh, does the surgeries and everything, he has tons of experience. He has performed over 100,000 uh, LASIK eye procedures. Um, he is in the top 1% of those in the United States who do this kind of thing. He's, got, he's board certified. He's all these things. Okay, and so when I walked in there to get examined and then to have the surgery, I knew beforehand that I could trust the guy because he's experienced, because he's done a lot of work in the area, and therefore because of the work and, and experience, and I don't know if he's written things, I'm assuming he has, um, he can be trusted. He, he's expanded his knowledge of his field so that when people walk in him to get, to get uh, surgery, they can know at the end of the surgery that, He's done his best because he is the best. Why? Because he's expanded his knowledge. He's, he knows what he's doing. The same principle applies to you and I. We, 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 we know God more by expanding our knowledge of him and what he's done. How do we do that? We, we dig deeper into the hope that we have because of salvation. Paul lists these three things. The hope that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The word know here has the idea of to, to process knowing or to discover something. So Paul is saying here, he wants his readers to discover the truth through the knowledge that God grants them. He wants them, as God grants them the wisdom, the revelation, the ability to understand, they understand the hope of his calling. The word hope here is a confident expectation that God will do what he has promised. And in reference here is the hope of the salvation call. The word calling there refers to the salvation so what is Paul doing? Paul is asking that the believers understand their salvation at a greater level, the hope that we have because of salvation. Now, the hope of salvation has many parts to it. It's not just the very act of being saved as you and I have, have come to faith in Christ, and that, that was the point we call salvation. But, but there's so much more after that. What, what is the hope of salvation? There, there are many parts to it, and I, I've, I've listed a few of them here. A hope of salvation is that there is restored relationship with God, Romans 5.10. There's the promise of eternal life, Romans 6.23. There's the promise of freedom from sin, Ephesians 5.27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. These are all the hope of our salvation. And Paul wants us to understand that, know that more intimately, more deeply. And there are many other things about salvation that we still can acquire and learn. So many other different facets of it. But Paul wants the Ephesian believers, he desires us that we dig deeper into that hope. We know that hope more intimately, more confidently. And therefore, we can confidently share that with others. That we have hope. Not just a, a hope of Salvation and eternal life, and that's a benefit of salvation, obviously. But also a hope that extends beyond that, that can give hope for today. That we can have restored relationship with God, that we can go to God when we're struggling. And that there's one day coming a freedom from sin. 
A freedom from strife, freedom from chaos, freedom from neglect. Paul wants us to say this, this hope is so much more than just the hope of our current salvation. There's, there's just so much more to it. And Paul asks that God would grant them, the Ephesian believers, the understanding to understand this more deeply and more intimately. That's a, this, that, is, that is what an action of his. Another, another thing that God wants, or Paul wants the believers to understand is that we explore the rich inheritance that we possess. So there's, there's a digging deeper into this hope, but there's an exploration Notice, it says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Same word, riches, is used back in verse 7 to talk about a wealthiness, an overabundance of something. And unlike in verse 7, where it is the riches of his grace, the overabundance of his grace, we're now talking about the wealthy abundance of the inheritance. And it's the inheritance we talked about last week, that the future promise that we get God and God gets us. There's this renewed relationship We inherit God, God inherits us. But there's also a future aspect to it that I think Paul highlights here, and that is that those who who trust in Christ will receive all that has been promised to them when God brings everything to a conclusion. So the inheritance not only is that we inherit God and God inherits us like we talked about last week, but it is this emphasis that we who trust in Christ, we're going to get all that has been promised to us. When God just brings everything together, brings uh, all things to himself, we will get that, those promises. The freedom from sin I mentioned earlier, the, the, the hope that you and I have, the inheritance that we will have is that we will be free from our sin forever. I, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to not having to deal with sin, because guess what? Sin is ugly, and I have seen its ugly head in my life, as I know you have. But guess what, brothers and sisters? There is one day coming, and part of our inheritance is we will no longer deal with that. We will no longer deal with the ugliness of sin. We also get this this, uh, promise of being uh, co-reigning with Christ, being one with him, being included in all the promises of Israel, the promise of eternal life, being in face-to-face relationship with God, no more believing just by faith, but now it's by sight. All those are inheritance. That is what we have. That is the future that is, that is coming. And Paul wants our understanding, our knowledge of it to be deeper. It is, it is a glorious inheritance. That's, that's the idea of the phrase, glory of the, its inheritance. This inheritance lacks no luster. It doesn't, it's not just this dull thing in the future. It's a, a bright, shining star, shining brightly as God does. Paul, Paul mentions something this, along these lines in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, but as is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have, have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I'm looking forward to seeing what heaven is like and the future is like in the eternal state. Because there is no writing that we can do, no, no scripture verse that we can read that will accurately describe what you and I have in eternity. And, and that, that I'm thankful for. Because the things I'm coming up with now for eternity probably are just so bad in comparison with what God already has planned that I'll go with God's plan and not mine. Because I have this rich inheritance that I have. And notice who this inheritance is for. It's in the saints. It's for all 
believers. Which again points to me that there's no one cut out of the inheritance. No one's disinherited once you believe in Christ. Everyone gets an equal share. You thankful for that this morning? You get an equal share of what God has for you in eternity. There's no hierarchy in heaven. This, this believer on here who has, has done so much for Christ, he gets the same as, as this person over here who has done much but perhaps not, has not gone all over the world in spreading the gospel. They've just done it faithfully where they're at. We all get an equal share. There's no super Christians in heaven. There are just faithful believers who God gives an inheritance to, the riches of our inheritance. The third thing that Paul wants them to know in regards to this, this attribute and action is we discover the great power of our God. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? This is a power that is far beyond any power we have access to. The exceeding greatness is, it means to attain to a degree that is extraordinarily exceeds a point on the scale. Basically, it's above anything that can be measured. So it's greater than that. It's, if you can measure something, it's greater than that. If you can measure this thing, it's greater than that. And it's, 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 it's not his, his character or his being. It's his power that Paul emphasizes. It's his might or ability, the exceeding greatness of his ability to do something. Paul wants us to understand that, what he has done, it is the ultimate power of God to which no one can compare. And this power is for those who have placed their trust in him and continually trust in God. That's the idea of the phrase, those who believe. It's, it's pointing to not a, just a faith that happened in the past by means of salvation, but an act of faith that continues Paul wants us to understand the great power that we have at our resources because of our faith. God is working that power for our benefit. And the standard of that power is God's strong strength according to the working of his mighty power. A literal translation of that is according to the working of his strong strength. And one author puts it this way, it is the surpassing greatness of his ability or potential was according to the mighty activity of power derived from his inherent strength. Basically, it's God's strength at your disposal. It's strength that comes from him. It doesn't come from an outside source. God doesn't get his strength from pulling the elements together and just using them to his advantage. No, it comes from God himself. The power of God is at your disposal and mine. God is using his power for us. And Paul further demonstrates that by looking to what he did for Christ. Again, it, for Paul, it goes back to Christ. It always goes back to him, the supremacy of Christ. Christ is at Paul's forefront of his mind. And so to demonstrate how God, powerful God is, Paul turns to Christ. And he mentions several things about him. Uh, God's power was demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. God worked or he, he brought something about so that the that, that power could be displayed. And in this case, it's the resurrection. God resurrected his son from the dead, raised him, caused him to return to life. 
which no one else could do. Only God can do that. And God demonstrated that power in raising Christ from the dead. God's power also was demonstrated in seating Christ in authority. He's seated at his right hand. Has the idea of God took his son and placed him in a position of authority. But notice, notice this is mentioned in Acts chapter 7, in the stoning of Stephen before Stephen is stoned. Acts 7, verses 55 to 56. But being, he being full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is in a position of authority. That is what the right hand means. And since it is God's throne, it is God's authority that Christ has been given. And it's in the heavenly places where he is now. So he demonstrated his story, but his, his power by seating Christ in authority. And notice something about this authority that, that, that Paul mentions. This is authority that no one else has. And it's far above anything man can come up with. The word far above all principality and power and might and dominion has the idea of, of to be high above, be beyond. And he lists all different types of powers, principalities, dominions, everything that man can come up with, kingdoms, we could use states, we could use governments. It shows that Christ is above every source of authority. And no matter what that authority is called, Christ is still above that. Paul says every name that is named. And in Paul's day, he's thinking about emperors and kings, governors, um, different levels of authority. He had different names called back then, same as today. And he, and, he, and he points out that regardless of the name that is called in his day, day or in the name that is called in our day, Christ is still above that authority. Christ is above our president. Christ is above Vladimir Putin in Russia. Christ is above Queen Elizabeth in England. Christ is above Tim Walls, our governor here in Minnesota. Christ is above our mayor. Christ is above every type of authority. He is above all. Praise God for that, right? We don't have to worry about who who's gets elected this November. And while we do show concern there, we, we, can, we can rest in the fact that God's above even that authority. And that he is there in all authority. Also, God's power was demonstrated in the subjection of every authority to Christ. So not only is he above authority, but he puts all things under his authority. That's the idea of putting all things under his feet. In the Old Testament times, when you, when you, uh, biblical times, when you conquered a nation and the, you, you put your feet under the, on the necks of those that you conquered, it meant that you had won. You were subjecting them, subordinating them to your authority. And here, God has subjected all things, every authority, everything in heaven and on earth to Christ because he is the supreme authority. And he is also our authority. God's power was demonstrated also in placing Christ as the head of the church. The word head refers to that, that, that authority of being the leader. Christ is the head of the church, which means he holds authority over it. As, as we assemble here at First Baptist and others assemble across our nation, across our world, Christ is authoritatively over all things in our church. He's author, he is authoritative over all the ordinances that we'll be celebrating here in a, in a couple minutes, the work of the ministry, anything that we do as a church, Christ is the authority over. 
Why? Because it's his body. It's the body of Christ. Christ is our head, we are the body. So we function, we cannot function without him. Therefore, because Christ has put him at, or God has put Christ at the head, we are subject to his authority. Which leads me to say, are we, are we, are we as a church putting ourselves under the authority of Christ? Are we looking in the scriptures? Are we, are we desiring to put ourselves under his authority so we are doing what he wants? Notice also the, the phrase, the fullness of him. This is an ongoing event. And I think the whole phrase itself, the fullness of him who fills all in all, as complex as that is, and many commentators argue, I think it refers to God filling the church with his power and attributes as Christ who is being filled with God, by God completely. So we're being filled by God's power and attributes, and God is filling Christ at the same time, so we're being filled together. We're being, being uh, empowered together as he is the head of the church. Another point, a couple points of application I have to make uh, on this point. Number one, are you making the effort to truly know God? Are, are, you trying, are you daily trying to understand and know God better, whether it be through reading your, script, your Bible every day, I trust you in, your, in the Word every day, or are you going outside of that, listening to, to other sermons, trying to understand and know God more, reading commentaries or books that are designed to impact the Christian life? Are you, are you making the effort to know God, or are you just kind of sitting back and just, no? Eh. That's what we're all supposed to do. We're supposed to deeply know God. That's how we mature in the faith. Second point, are you relying on the strong power of your God to handle your victories and struggles in life? And it's like Paul, from verse 20 on, kind of talks about this power of God worked out in Christ. He wants us to see how powerful our God is. To the point that we understand that whatever we struggle with, whatever we go through, we have a powerful God who can help. We don't have a God who just kind of stands idly by and waits for things to happen. No, we have a God who is powerful, so powerful that he raised Christ from the dead, and he put him in authority, and he is the head of our church. Therefore, God is able to help me. Are you relying on that power in your life? A skill cannot be developed unless it is used, studied, and understood. You won't be successful unless you use it. But in the same way, maturity in the faith must be embraced and deepened. If you and I are going to mature in our faith, if you and I are going to grow in our faith, we have to do two things. We depend upon God for that maturity. We look to him. We realize that only he can grant that power, that ability to be mature. And then we expand our knowledge of God's attributes and actions so that we can mature in faith, knowing him more and understanding him and, and loving him and testifying him to the world. May we, as we go through this week, make the effort to be mature in our faith.